As we continue on in our City on a Hill sermon series, it's an interesting passage, isn't it, right? And so, um, since Jason's not here today, I can take revenge, right? And so, I don't want to go too bad because he probably will listen to the sermon, right? So, it's kind of an interesting passage because it flies in the face of how we think naturally, right? We're all about revenge. It's not hard to tell. I remember when my kids were little, my son's here with his youth group, so I got to embarrass him. And so they spent the last two nights at our house. And so when he was little, he was probably close to four. My daughter was, uh, Brooke was a, a couple years old. And um, I remember one time uh, I heard him screaming in the room. When I went in there, Brooke had locked a part of his hair and was pulling his hair. And so when I went in there, I had to pry her cold hands out of his hair. And so, uh, and I said, Joe, don't get mad at her. She doesn't know uh, that it hurts, Right. And I could see his eyes get real big, like he thought of something, right? As I turned around to walk out of the room, I heard, I heard Brooke crying. And I turned around, and there's Joe grabbing her hair so she could see how it feels, right? Because he's got a hair. It's, it's part of who we are, that revenge psyche in America. And to me, this passage, along with others I'm going to bring to you today, clearly are in opposition of the world's thinking. We relish in the concept of revenge, don't we? I would often say we delight in the concept of revenge. That's why it's in so many of our songs. It's about most of what our movie's about. Every Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bruce Willis, that's what they're all about, right? I mean, think of some of the great lines we always call from movies, right? Clint Eastwood, go ahead and make my day. Sean Connery and Untouchable is the great one. They send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue, right? It's all about revenge and retaliation. And uh, to me, when we see that, we say yes. In fact, we kind of, it comes down to it, we really delight in it. In fact, science says that when you watch a revenge movie where justice is served, you actually, it's more satisfying the second time because you know what's going to happen, right? It's kind of interesting. It says a lot about who we are and our psyche, right? It's interesting, though, because when you watch these movies, characters are portrayed in a one-dimensional way, right? The bad guy is all bad all the time. There's nothing redeemable about him. So that, in the end, when human life is taken, we actually delight in it. Isn't that kind of weird for a Christian? And isn't that so unlike the Scriptures? We have a fantasy about that dish that is best served cold, don't we? We love the concept of people getting paid back, getting what they deserve, getting their comeuppance. I love that word, don't you? (laughs) Comeuppance. And in the end, they get what they deserve. And more importantly, it's best when we're the ones that do it, isn't it? You know, I, I was looking for stories of revenge that kind of earmarked the human psyche, and I came across this story on the Internet. Not sure if it's true, although it says it is. I didn't really do an investigation. It was about a husband and wife, married 25 years, wealthy, husband owned the business. He buys this beautiful home that they live in, and uh, after 25 years, he decided he wanted to spend the rest of his life with his secretary. He was 25 years older, bitter divorce. In the divorce, he had better lawyers. He takes the only thing she wanted, the wife, was the house, right? 
And the new wife says, I want to be in there three days after the whole thing's done, the closing of the, all the documents. So he gives the ex-wife three wet days. The first day she packs. The second day she ships everything out. The third day she decides to have the last meal in the house that she loves. She bakes a couple pounds of shrimp and gets some caviar, has this big feast. And at the end of the feast, she takes everything that's left over and mashes it up and puts it in all the window treatment rods throughout the house. Husband moves in the next day, everything's fine for a few days. Then all of a sudden, the smell starts to come around, right? See, you're all laughing. You're getting excited about where the story's going, which tells you about where we're at and what's going on. And so they can't figure out what, where the smell is coming from, so they wash everything, they clean everything, and they still can't change the smell. They're opening all the windows, and it just gets to the point where it's unbearable. And the new wife says, I can't live here, so he buys another house, and he tries to sell that house. He can't sell it because of the smell, and no realtors are going to try to sell it, so he doesn't know what he's going to do. He thinks he's going to have to take a loss on the house, and then the ex-wife calls him and says, hey, I see you're selling my house. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a great deal. If you buy the house today, I'm giving you one day only, I'll give it to you for 25% of what it's worth. So the wife buys the house. She gets her house back. And she says, you got two days to get everything out of the house. So that second day where she's going to move in, she's sitting out in front with her movers getting ready to move in. And she's smiling as she sees the movers taking all the window treatments with them to the new house. We love that story because they, you know, we say, here's the guy, he got what he deserved. Again, he's the bad guy, she's the good guy. It's the way things work. My favorite story that I saw was a soldier who was over in Iraq. This is a true story, I know for sure. And while he was over there a couple months, and when he left, his girlfriend gave him the, the best picture she had of her so he would remember her while he was gone. And while he was gone, a few months in, he got the Dear John letter. He was distraught. And... Um, his best friend in the platoon, you know, was, you know, feeling sorry for him because in the letter, the girl asked for the picture back. She wanted to use it for a bridal announcement. So he didn't know what to do, and his friend came up with the idea. He said he got all the guys in the platoon to give him a picture of their girlfriend. They threw it all in a box, and he said, here, please pick out your picture and return the rest because I can't remember which one you are. That was his way of getting revenge. We live in a culture that's all about it because we, we like revenge. We think God is that way as well, don't we? We have this picture of God hovering over us with lightning bolts ready to rain down on those who offend us. And it's just not the way the Bible is. Jesus makes it clear not to avenge ourselves. There's no wiggle room here. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul reinforced this in Romans chapter 12. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. I don't think I included this in the PowerPoint. But this is a great passage. I want you to follow along with me real quick. But, bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. <clears throat> Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Then I love it. In the midst of this passage where this is kind of really difficult teaching, he puts this one word of endearment in there that I think changes everything if you really see it. And he says, 
beloved, right? Those I love. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's pretty clear, right? Do not avenge yourself. This is not a call to pacifism. I hate to have to do this in sermons, but you got to kind of qualify. This is not, he's not saying, don't defend your wife or your kids or your home or your country. That would be unbiblical. It's saying, don't avenge yourself. It's also not saying that denying vengeance as a whole, is it? Many despise vengeance in this world. In other words, there should be no retribution whatsoever. In fact, it's one of the things that most people are non-believers for because our culture despises the doctrine of hell. It's because we despise the idea of God exacting vengeance upon the wicked, don't we? It's unfathomable for people to understand that. Now, those people would be the first to retaliate if they were offended, the first to slap back or hit back, no matter what. They just don't want God executing justice against wrongdoing. They can't comprehend that. To me, one of the other stories I heard that was really kind of a cool story was I was in the Jewel, and I was looking at, uh, I was trying to look at the, um, what do you call it, the... Uh, inquires and all those things to see if there's anything on there that was current with retaliation and as I got into the checkout line the lady goes you interested in those uh, in the magazine I says no nah, I was just looking for a story a current story on retaliation or revenge and she started laughing and she told me about a woman who came in to uh, buy groceries and when she was in there she was putting her groceries in and she noticed in her purse the tv remote control and I started laughing. She goes, I go, what you? She goes, I said, hey, do you always take the remote control with you when you go shopping? She goes, no, but my husband wouldn't come with me, and this is the most evil thing I could think to do that was legal. <laughs> I thought that was great. He's probably looking for the remote. She's out shopping. See, the passage kind of talks about an eye for an eye, and, and the justice, the, the concept of an eye for an eye is that justice should be equitable. That's basically what it's saying there, right? It shouldn't be excessively harsh, but it shouldn't be excessively lenient either. And, 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 and here's the issue here. If you look at the context of when that, that passage is given, um, and, and, and be mindful, there's no indication in all of Scripture that an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was actually executed. There's no story that shows that. And, and to me, in the biblical account, there's a particular law was given before this where God had already established uh, a judicial system to hear cases and determine penalties, so to speak. And that was in Exodus 18, a system that would be unnecessary if God intended an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Gandhi always commented on that and said, the issue with an eye for an eye is it leaves the world blind. And to a certain extent, that's true. But what God was saying here is is that he established institutions to administer justice. And if something fell out of those, then it was left to you. You're to leave it to God. He basically gave us three institutions that we have. And it starts right in the home, right? So he first gave us the rod, which is for the home. And it's spanking or corporal punishment. 
I know people go, oh, my God, you talked about spanking. I live, we live in a day and age where, to me, the issue isn't me saying that. It's what the Bible says, right? Spare the rod, spoil the child. Now, I get it. There's other ways to discipline. So, but here's my thing. You got to do it. And if we do that in the home, we're not going to have a bunch of spoiled kids running around thinking they deserve everything and are entitled to everything. It's so different today from when I was growing up. If you talk to somebody in, you know, a little bit younger than me to a little bit older than me, they'll remind, they'll, and you remind them the sound of a belt coming out of an eight-loop pair of pants. They know that like that. Kids today don't even know it. When I got spanked, my dad used to make me touch my toes. Bend down and touch your toes. That was brutal. That was worse than getting spanked. But whenever I knew I had it coming, I wouldn't put a bunch of underwear on, so it would pad the, the blows, right, until he caught me. That was brutal, too. We used to spank our kids. We used to say, do you know what you did wrong? Do you know why you did it wrong? Do you know what the punishment is? And then we gave them a loving spank, and we told them we loved them. We asked them asked for forgiveness. It could be done right. Now, I know there's a lot of people that don't, and that's wrong, but it doesn't negate that the Bible says, hey, the rod is for the home for discipline. Then it gives us the sword, right? And that's for the state or the government, and it's about executing penalties, execution, all those things that require the law. That's for us as well. And then last but not least, and the one that people think is the, you know, the, the minimal one, to me is the most important one, he gives us the keys for the church. Leads to excommunication, right? Nobody cares about that anymore. To me, the worst thing that can happen to you in life is when a church deems you not worthy of being a part of it because you're undisciplined. But God gave us these things, the, big, the, biblical, restitute, the biblical principle that all restitution is wrong is only in the case of personal vengeance, right? These three things are meant to take care of everything, and when it falls outside of those, and it depends on you and it's personal revenge, that is wrong, and the Bible says it belongs to God. Plain and simple. You know, we have this mentality, they wronged me, I must avenge myself, I must extract my pound of flesh, I need to give them a piece of my mind, and I'm going to tell them like it is, right? I love what Webster wrote in 1928. This is the definition of 1928. I want to encourage you to go home in your Bibles and look in the Webster Bible today. It's nothing like this. Here's, here's what Webster wrote. The infliction of pain on another in return for an offense or an offense. That's the definition of vengeance. Such affliction, when it proceeds from malice or more resentment and is not necessary for the purposes of justice, is revenge and is the most heinous crime and sin. When such affliction proceeds from mere love of justice and the necessity of punishing offenders for the support of the laws, it, it, it is vengeance and is warnable and unjust. In this case, vengeance is just retribution, recompense for punishment. In the latter sense, the word is used in Scripture and frequently applied to the punishment inflicted on God and sinners. Much different than you get in today's dictionary. It's amazing how things change. And how, you know, the world just drifts towards this own self-defining understanding of words and meanings. To me, I think there's three reasons why avenging, avenging yourself is wrong, in addition to the scripture saying it. One is, avenging yourself, ourselves is viewing ourselves in the place of God, isn't it? There's but one who is righteous and is to be vindicated, and that is God and God alone. If I believe I'm to be vindicated, then I believe I am righteous. And that's blasphemy. 
I believe like David did, that when he sinned, his sin was against God alone. Our sin may involve another person or be against another person, but ultimately our sin is against God. And only God can judge righteously and justly because he is the standard, he is the bearer of truth, he is the one that judges righteously. For us to seek revenge places myself at the center of the universe, replacing God himself. In other words, someone sinned against me, and I must take vengeance. I must make it right. So I'm best suited to exact justice, which implies I'm righteous. I'm the standard. I'm right when I speak, and I'm right when I judge. And that is just other blasphemy. That in itself is just sinful. Lewis Smead says the problem with revenge is it never uh, evens the score. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalation of pain. That is so true. The second reason why I believe it's wrong is it says I'm satisfied with a finite punishment when an infinite one is deserved. We somehow rationalize that my vengeance will satisfy the penalty for sin or an offense. I get to say my harmful words or return the punch with a slap. My need to avenge in itself is sin. It's so heinous it's not sufficient for the offense or the retaliation. Because why? Anger, the Bible says, deceives, doesn't it? James 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Isn't that interesting? It just doesn't. Your anger, my anger is insufficient. Which means vengeance is insufficient. When I avenge or neglect God's call to let him handle it, I'm focused on me. When God's doing the work, he focuses on the benefit of the one who offended. When I avenge, it's about me. When God does it, it's about the person. Because doesn't the Bible say everything works together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes? See, when God does it, he's thinking of the individual. He's not thinking about me. Science proves this out. I read a bunch of articles in the psychology today and the New York Times where it says, vengeance leaves you wanting more. It doesn't leave you satisfied. It never does. They don't realize they're substantiating the word of God, but it's true. Philip Yancey said this on revenge. The problem with revenge, it never gets what it wants. It never evens the score. Fairness never comes. The chain reaction set up by every act of vengeance always takes its unhindered course. It ties both the injured and the injurer to an escalation of pain. Both are stuck on the escalator as long as parity is demanded. And the escalator never stops. It never lets anyone off, which is why it's best left in God's hands, right? He knows how to do it best. The last one, and I think it illuminates the hypocrisy of our sin being worthy of forgiveness and the other person's sin worthy of wrath. The anger of our response is worthy of death in and of itself and hell. And we're such a hypocrite to think that I and my sin 
is more tolerable than someone else's of me. Doesn't make sense, does it? I remember I was hurt many years ago uh, before we uh, even went out to Manhattan. I was in another ministry for 11 years, and at the end, it was very bitter. Uh, Some things that happened, the enemy got in, and uh, some things changed, and I was really hurt. And uh, it was really difficult for me and my family. And my initial reaction was I, was I wanted to be vindicated. In some regards, I wanted to be avenged. I struggled with it and because I was wrong. Here's the thing, though. As I started to meditate in and started to think about it, started to go through the scriptures, I realized in order for me to be avenged, the church would have to be hurt. I didn't want that. It changed the way I prayed. It changed the way I thought of it. I said, Lord, it's your church. They're your people. I got to trust you with whatever happens. And it's interesting. Some eight years later, uh, the person that offended me, you know, uh, we started to, to reconcile. Some events came up where the Lord brought us back together. We hadn't talked in years. And you know what? The Lord just laid on my heart a, 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 an overwhelming sense of love for the individual. Because in the end, he was a good guy. He just had some wrong people around him, and he was listening to wrong voices, and he suffered for it, and he suffers for it today. And I was out to to lunch with somebody yesterday at a wedding, and I told them that I had let him list my house, right? And their jaw dropped. And they go, you got to be kidding me. And I said, you know what? If Paul can uh, reconcile with John Mark, I can reconcile with him. And it's a good way to go. Here's the thing. I feel bad about what happened. I feel bad for him. I felt bad for myself, but I mostly feel bad for the church. Revenge doesn't do anything. It doesn't satisfy. To me, I think that when we look at this passage, what are we talking about here? So if you take into context where we've been in this passage going up to this point, think about what he's saying about turning the other cheek, walking the extra mile, and giving of your own goods. He's taking all that we learned in the Beatitudes, what it means to be a, a kingdom maker, right? We're, we're to be humble, poor in spirit. We're to be broken and mourn, and we're to be meek. All those things make and give you the ability to turn the other cheek to go the extra mile, to give of what yours to someone else in need. Without those, you couldn't do it, right? As we look at the other three, it talks about how do we have a new attitude, a hunger and thirst for God, and, a, and to be merciful and to be pure in heart. All those things make us peacemakers, and this is what this is all about. It's all coming together, and he's showing us in some very stark contrast to the way the world thinks. This is who we're to be. What he's saying, and I believe if you look at that passage, it's really about, and a term that we're all familiar with is to go to second mile. You can say go the extra mile, but I like it, to go the second mile. So it was required by law that if a Roman soldier came up to you and said, you're to carry this stuff for a mile, they had to do it. But Jesus is saying, well, that's what you had to do. Now do something that's for me and do the second mile. Go above and beyond. Luke put it this way, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. That's a pretty tough statement, isn't it? It says something about that. For forgiveness, life is governed by endless cycles of resentment and retaliation unless we give it all to God, unless we let Him have it, and that's what it means to go the second mile. It won't be an enjoyable trip unless you do it for the Lord. And we're called to do it for the Lord. There's some things in the second mile that actually keep most Christians from walking it and traveling down it. The first one is the second mile is a lonely road, isn't it? It's just you and the Lord most of the time. You're traveling that second mile, and, you know, sometimes you're doing it for others, but sometimes 
You're doing it because others caused you to walk it. There are only two types of Christians on that roadway. It's not a crowded roadway, by the way. Those who travel the second mile willingly and those who are forced to do it. It gets lonely on the second mile. Not many there who can fellowship with you. You ever watch the New York City Marathon or the Boston Marathon when they start off? There's thousands of runners right there at the, at the takeoff line, right at the start. But if you ever stay in there and you watch it to the end, it's usually people running by themselves crossing the finish line. No one else around. And that's how the Christian life is. We all start off really great. But as we're called to go to that second mile and do what we, don't, we find unnatural to do because we're going to do it for the glory of God, people stop walking that road. And it gets lonely. Willing or forced, Jesus is on that second mile. But you know what? So is Satan. So is the enemy. It's lonely. But the second mile, one of the things that makes it difficult for people is the second mile never ends. It has no ending marker. If you're on the fellowship of this radical philosophy and someone asks you, where are you at in the Christian life? To me, the right response is, I'm on the second mile. There is no third mile. You're not halfway there, three-quarters of the way there, because nobody knows where the finish line is. For some, it could be this week, God forbid. You never know where you're at. But if I say I'm the second mile, they're going to say, what does that mean? And I get a chance to tell them what Jesus called me to do. The good news is that if you're on the second mile, Christian, you're never, here's what I love this about all the people my age and older, you're never over the hill. Right? You may not even see it in the future. I'm on the second mile, just the same thing as a young person is. We're all equal there. It's not an age thing. It's an attitude thing. The finish line might be, not be exactly in sight, but we know it's out there by faith. And suddenly when it appears with shouts of angels, we're ready to embrace the loving arms of our Savior who will say, welcome home, good and faithful servant. Amen? Let me ask you. Are you on that second mile? I love the Coast Guard. The story of a Coast Guard crew was summoned in a storm of night to rescue a ship in distress. And one of the sailors was fearful because it looked really bad. And um, he said to the captain, he said, uh, hey, uh, we're never going to get back. And the captain looked at him and he said, hey, our orders aren't to come back. Our orders are to go and save as many as we can. To me, that's got to be the mindset of missionaries, right? To go, not worrying about whether they come back or not. They're there to go to save as many as they can. And shouldn't that be the same for each and every one of us? I think it should. The second mile never ends. And here's the other thing about the second mile. It's always under attack, isn't it? There'll be landmines on this road all around it. There'll be a few shots fired. There's always someone demanding you to go the second mile. And I finally, I, I find it usually it's the, it's the same people over and over again, isn't it? It gets old after a while. I get it. Sometimes there's Satan there. He's trying to lure you off to a sideshow. He may use friends, family, and most effectively sometimes fear to get you from walking the road. The other one I find which sometimes is more effective are the spectators. 
You know, we expect fact, uh, attacks from those who, you know, are against God, but not from those who seemingly are for God, you know, and you hear it from friends and families. I remember when we were, you know, early in our marriage and we made a commitment to serve God, we'd get, hey, why are you guys always at church? Do you always have to go to church? Um, why are you, you know, uh, always trying to, to, to serve other people and not serve your family? You know, I think that, you know, there's those that don't want to help, don't want to attend, don't want to get involved. You know, we c- come to a place where in the church we've got a consumer mentality, right? We're here to be fed, not recognizing we're being fed to fill us up to go the second mile. And so I think that, you know what, it's discouraging and lonely if you can't figure it out already and it doesn't end and it's under attack. It's not those roads that most people want to travel down. But you've got to trust in Scripture where it says, hey, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding, and I will make your paths straight. And that's what he'll do when we walk that second mile. Let me say this, though. I think that a carnal Christian has no boundary of what he expects from a second miler for the Christian to do. They won't do it themselves, but they think everyone else should do it. A lot of voices like that in the church. We give Satan a lot of credit, but I think our worst enemy is those who are marginal, those who are consumers. So the second mile is also under attack, but the second mile, it's a burdensome road, isn't it? We're to bear others' burdens. We're to, we're to take on things. Galatians says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Doesn't make that road look that entertaining, does it? It's a difficult road. So why walk it? Why go the second mile? Why turn the other cheek? Why give of what I got? Because in my mind, it is the road to blessing. To me, the second mile leads to joy. The first mile was required. The second mile is voluntary. The second mile says, I believe in Jesus and I'm willing to go that mile for him. And I hope every person in this room is tuned in right now because I got a feeling that a lot of you are unhappy with your life because you're not walking the second mile. You're stuck with doing what is commanded and not what is voluntary. Happiness is in the heart, never seeks recognition. The happiness of the heart is rewarded by the second miler. As he sees the needs of others fulfilled, his needs are fulfilled. A Christian is to never think of being served by anyone, but it's to be a servant. Matthew 16 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus came not to be ministered, but to minister. We need to be a, have a contributor mentality and not a consumer mentality. Here's the scene. For all you married people, you're going to know this right away. You're at home. You've settled in for a nice evening. You've got a movie getting ready on the table. You've got your kids going. And all of a sudden, somebody asks for something where you have to get out of your chair. The first thing you do is you look at your spouse to see if they're going to go first. <laughs> and then when they don't think they're going to go first, you're thinking, I don't want to get up either. And all of a sudden, you have these looks to each other, and then somebody gets up resentful because they've got to be the one to serve. Let me tell you something, a lot of marriages, a lot of families would be a lot happier and a lot better off if we took on this contributive mentality and realized, I'm going to walk the second mile. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you think. 
I'm going to serve. And I'm going to do it with joy. I'm not going to do it with resentment. Christian joy in happiness never comes after being served, but it comes from serving. You will not find one scripture that hints that you should be on the receiving end of service. Not one. Happiness is in the home. And let me tell you something. If more marriages, the husband and wife took on that mentality of being a servant and going the second mile for the husband or the wife, there'd be much happier homes out there. There'd be much happier children out there because they'd be the byproduct of marriage filled with joy and happiness because each one serves one another unconditionally. Let me say this. The second mile also leads to rewards. Rewards can only be given to those who travel the second mile and they do so with the right motive. If you sacrifice in order to receive rewards, the rewards will never come. But if you sacrifice because you love the Lord, then your rewards will be immeasurable. Because in the Bible says you can't even comprehend what God has in store for those who serve him. Why should we teach Christians to go to second mile? Because Jesus Christ walked the second mile all the way to the cross at Calvary. He didn't worry about it and what anybody was saying to him or what anybody thought about him. He knew the road was the right road for us. And so it should be for all of us. Go home the day after we leave here and read Hebrews 11 and see all those believers that walk the second mile and how they're rewarded by their names mentioned in Scripture, the Hall of Fame of Faith. To me, the second mile leads to rewards, but the second mile is the way of holiness. There's no carnal on the second mile. The carnal dare not enter. No complainers on the second mile. The complainers will never begin the second mile. No one jealous on the second mile. Jealousy will keep you from success in anything. No greedy on the second mile. No hit and miss Christians on the second mile because it's not for the faint of heart. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 35, And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, this is what's good for all of us, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. It's the way of holiness. The second mile, I will say this, is different for everyone. None will be excused from the second mile because of infirmity. There's much that can be done and be still done in pain. I believe God expects Christians to serve through pain and discomfort. I've not found any scripture that would relieve them from duty because they're in pain. And I'm not talking about disability pain. I'm just talking about, it's amazing why some people don't want to end up doing something. But they'll go to work on Monday. Or they'll go to their family. And I know it seems harsh. I know sometimes, I, you know, I, I get emails that I'm, I'm um, insensitive. I just think it's scriptural, right? Paul in prison, chained, is talking about joy and happiness because he's walking the second road. What do we suffer from? Or what are we, what is keeping us from serving God? And I'm aware we have some people here who are in great pain most of the time. My wife's in a lot of pain a lot of times with her knees. And yet serving God and going the second mile sometimes has the ability to take your mind off of that pain and that discomfort because you focus on the joy of serving Christ. It's amazing how he does that. 
Paul, man, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Think about what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like the madmen at far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Day and night I was adrift at the sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst often without food in colon exposure and apart from other things there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches he just blew right through it because he knew the value of the second mile after having these many hard experiences he said this brothers i do not consider that i have made it my own But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God and Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? He had a lot of physical damage to his body, but it didn't stop him from doing the work. He kept pressing on. And sometimes, instead of calling in, we need to drag ourselves in to do the work of God. I get it. It's tough but I think the reward is immeasurable. I'm convinced that many of our hardships and pains might leave us if we forget them and go down that second mile. So we're not excused because of infirmity, and we're not excused the second mile because of itinerary. God expects us to find time to do what he's assigned us to. It's reasonable. It may mean that I have to get less sleep or less pay. It's all about priorities and putting God first. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you? The American culture has been influenced over lifestyle of ease, and we think that that is our right when God says in Scripture, man shall earn the living by the sweat of his brow. He never paints an easy picture but he, he paints one that's filled with contentment and joy and happiness. Lastly, none are excused because of, our, of, of ignorance. A great place to learn about anything is in the middle of the battle. You learn a lot there. I remember when I was growing up, the way they taught a lot of people to swim was they'd just throw them in the pool. And if they didn't know how to swim, they'd throw the next one in the pool, and hopefully that one would swim and save the first one, Right? <laughs> It's amazing sometimes. I think sometimes Christians need to just jump in. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to lead that group. I don't know how to lead that Sunday school. I don't know how to do nursery. Just jump in. It's amazing what God does with people who are willing to just jump in and take that step. To do something for the name and cause of Christ. Regardless of whether you think you have the ability, the knowledge, or the experience. Just trusting God knows what he's doing. That's what we're called to do. It's interesting because Galatians says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up, if we stay on that second mile, if we follow the call of Christ for our life. I'd like you to all bow your heads here as I close, and I'm going to ask you a question. Are you on that second mile, or has the second mile proved to be too lonely, too burdensome, too much under attack for you to say, okay, Lord, I'm... I know this is difficult, 
but I'm with you because I know you're for me and I know you love me. I ask, Lord, that you would just have your hand upon everyone here today. And Lord, that by the leading of your Holy Spirit, just call them to a place where they see the glory of the second mile. And Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that has never realized that their sin stands between you and a holy and righteous God, and that sin is is deserving of your wrath, and because, Lord, you're just and, and righteous and that you're loving, you sent a sacrifice for that sin, and that was your son Jesus on the cross at Calvary. And the blood that he shed there share, covers my sin and puts it as far as you from east as west so that I can have a relationship to you because I count of what your son did for me and every other sinner in this world. They've never realized that that payment is what we all need to have a relationship with you, Lord. I'd ask that they would see that this morning and they would call on your name and they would ask you to come in their heart and ask you to lead them in this life and help them to understand the second mile and to walk the second mile. And for anyone here who's struggling, maybe you're the one that's sitting on the seat, you're the spectator causing others to stumble. Maybe you're their complainer or a grumbler or someone who's just not feeling it. Trust me, others do. Maybe you got to give that to the Lord this morning. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's at your workplace. The altar is open this morning. You can do it at your seat. You can come down. But Lord, I think we've all got to be reminded that we're called to walk that second mile. We're called to leave vengeance in your hand. For only you can do it in a way, Lord, that lifts others up and satisfies our need. We'd ask, Lord, that you help us remember this teaching when we're hurt and offended, that we may give you glory and give that situation and that person into your hands and trust you. And I just pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.